Uh, it's been said by many coaches that one of the best, one of the best plays in the playbook uh, to call is the victory formation. That's at the end of a, a football game where the coach will call in, um, and in essence what he's telling the team is, we've won this game. Center, all I need you to do is snap the ball to the quarterback. Quarterback, I need you to take a knee and just run out the clock. One of the best plays because it means that the game has been won, that, that it's over. It's, the, it's what they call the victory formation. You, you get the, the linemen, offensive linemen are in tight formation. You've got the quarterback under center, then the tailback and the running back, um, whatever combination you have in the backfield, they line up tight to the quarterback, and it's the victory formation. Snap the ball, take a knee, run out the clock, and win the game. Can we, we're not going to get too deep in this, but can we just talk about college football for just a minute? And I don't want to go too deep into it because uh, it's, come to my, it's come to my recognition that y'all don't play football here in Kentucky. Is it, wait, that's not, that's not true? I do want to thank you. Being from Mississippi, I want to thank you and your team for handing a defeat to a team yesterday that we never, ever mentioned from a pulpit, all right? I'm not going to tell y'all who I cheer for, but I'll tell you who my family never mentions, all right? Uh, they are, um, they're the mission field. Like, we know that the Lord loves everyone, um, but we question whether or not he loves the people from that particular school, all right? Uh, thank you guys for that. But you think about the victory formation, you, you call the victory formation when the game is over, like when you've won the game. Um, and it just like, my mind just kind of wondered when I was thinking about this, about what is the greatest margin of victory? Like when was the earliest that someone could have called the victory formation within a four-quarter football game? And it brought, me, it brought me to find out what the largest margin of victory was in a college football game, in the NCAA college football game. It happened in October uh, in the early 1900s. Georgia Tech beat Cumberland College from Tennessee by a margin of 222 to zero. Here's an image of the scoreboard from that game. Smoked them, right? So they should have like, whoever was coaching Georgia Tech, they should have called for the victory formation in the first quarter. Like just run the, just, just kneel it, just run the clock out. But coach, we have like 45 minutes left in the game. It doesn't matter. Just kneel it every time. It's 63 in the first quarter, 63 unanswered points in the second quarter. Obviously, they called in the middle school team uh, at halftime and scored 54 in the third quarter. Uh, apparently, they called in the cheerleading squad for the fourth quarter and scored 42 unanswered points, ending the game with a margin of victory of 222. They scored so many points, the people running the scoreboard were like, we don't even have anywhere to put this third number. We're just going to slap it on the end. 222 to nothing. Like, call victory formation already, right? In the Christian's life, we have a victory formation. We're going to look in Exodus chapter 17 to learn about it. And and we're going to see the victory formation for the Christian. And, and the difference that we should note among others between victory formation in college football and victory formation in Christian life, we don't wait for the game to be over to call the victory formation, but we call the victory formation early on. 
Like we need to assume a posture of victory early in every battle or before every battle. Why? Because we're not going to call the victory formation after we think that we've won the battle, but we're going to call the victory formation at the beginning of the battle, not because we're fighting for victory, but because as Christians believing in Jesus Christ, we are fighting from a place of victory. We're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. And it doesn't matter what we face, but we are fighting from victory and from the victory formation. Uh, This is the statement. So if there's like a blanket statement over this message, this is it. The Christian's victory formation is having arms raised, being surrounded by godly committed people, and keeping your eyes on Jesus. The Christian's victory formation, like if we want to assume this formation in our life, if you're facing battle, if you're facing trial, if you are coming against uh, some difficulty, some obstacle, or some opponent, your victory formation is keeping your arms up, being surrounded by godly, committed people, and keeping your eyes on Jesus Christ. This is where you need to be. This is how you should be. Let me read for you from Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. And I want to read this passage, and then I want to share with you the three parts of the Christian formation, Christian victory formation, so that you can assume that formation in your life, and that you can assume and set yourself in the posture of victory, no matter what you're going through. Here we have Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of a hill with staff, with a staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Ur went to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Ur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Let's have a word of prayer and we're going to jump into the message. Father, thank you for your word and um, giving me the opportunity to be the messenger to deliver to your church Uh, this powerful message on victory formation. Father, my prayer is that you would lead us to not only know your word, but to hear it in our hearts and practice it in our lives. And so first, Lord, we ask that you would deliver the message to our hearts, instruct our minds, and then, Lord, that you would, through the preaching of your word, give us the inspiration to live it out every single day. And the only way that we can have this is through your Holy Spirit. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be heavy, full, and among us, present now. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's the first point. The first point, first part of the victory formation is to have our arms up. To have our arms up. 
The, the context of this passage, the context of this passage is that Moses is leading the nation of Israel through the wilderness. This is the Exodus story. He's leading the people of Israel through the wilderness. They have crossed the Red Sea. They are now in the wilderness on this 40-year journey it will take them. And they're facing one of the first opponents, Amalek and his tribe or Amalek and his people. Now, Amalek and his people, they come, they come to, to battle with Israel, not because they're just looking for a fight, but because Israel is this large nation of people that's traveling through the wilderness. They stop to get a drink of water at Amalek and his family's oasis or at their watering spot. That's what's taking place in the verses, uh, verses 1 through 7 of Exodus chapter 17. So they have cause. They're like, these people are coming to take over our land. They don't know that the people of God are just passing through. But they think the people of God are coming to take over their land because they're in the wilderness, they're in the desert, and there's some water there. Therefore, people are like, we got to protect our water. And so Amalek and his people, much smaller in population and size than Israel, they flank the nation of Israel. They come around, they attack them from the sides and from the rear, trying to surprise them and take them out and push them out of the land. This is one of the first battles that the nation of Israel faces in the wilderness. It's one of their first battles they face. And so God tells Moses, Moses, I want you to go up on a hill. I want you to go up on the hill. And when you get up on the hill, I want you to hold your arms up with a staff in your hand. And as long as your hands are up, Israel will prevail. But if you lower your hands, if you lower your arms, then Amalek and the Amalekites will prevail. So Moses goes up on the hill and he puts his hands up. Now this was not only a providential instruction, but this was also typical protocol for battle. The commander would go up on the hill and all of his uh, commanded officers and army and soldiers would see him up on the hill. If his hands are in the air, that calls for military advance. Okay, so arms up calls for a military advance. But arms down call for a military, military retreat. Okay, important to notice. When the arms are up, it says, go forward, charge, press on, battle forward. But if the commander puts his arms down, it signifies a retreat. Run away, turn, stop fighting, get out of there. It was important for the nation of Israel. It was important for the nation of Israel that Moses kept his arms up. It was important for him to keep his arms up. And the reason that it was important, because it said, press on, fight. And they don't know what he can see from that perspective. And what they don't know is that Israel had the upper hand. They were, they were grossly outnumbering the uh, Amalek and his people. They don't know that the promised land is still in the future, not behind them. And they are challenged and charged to press forward in battle. Got to keep your arms up. For the Christian, you need to have your arms up. All right, and I'm not just talking about in the worship service, all right? This service, you guys do a little bit better about raising your hands up than the first service. All right, I don't know if you know anything about the first service. They're not necessarily the hand-raising type of folks. A little bit different flavor there. He says, put your hands up because not only does it signify military advance, but it also demonstrates a prayerful, prayerful dependence on God. In other words, God, you're the one that has brought us here and you're the one that's going to give us victory. 
And you're not just holding your hands up with, a, with empty, idle posture, but you're holding up the staff of God. Now remember, Moses is holding the staff of God up. Not only can Moses see it, but all of the nation of Israel can see it. And what does that staff represent? Well, that was the staff that Moses was carrying when he came a, across the bush that was on fire but was not burning up. That was the staff that he was carrying when God told him initially to go to Pharaoh and as proof that God was going to direct the nation of Israel out of Egyptian slavery, he told Moses, throw the staff on the ground and it's going to become a serpent. And then I want you to pick it up. And when you pick it up, it's going to become a staff again. This is the staff when Israel was uh, exiting Egyptian slavery and they're first getting out into the wilderness and they get to the Red Sea, this enormous body of water that they can't get across. And the Egyptian army is on their tails about to take them down and recapture them into slavery. And God says, Moses, raise up your staff. And when you raise up your staff, this water, this body of water is going to split and the entire nation of Israel can walk across on dry land. And then I'm going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians to think they can chase after you. And when they do, the water is going to fall over and it's going to kill them. This is the staff that's not only been used as a source and a tool to to provide or to show God's presence and to give the nation of Israel protection. But this is also the staff that when nation of Israel came across some water or needed water, God told Moses to use the staff to hit the ground and water would come up out of the ground. This is a, this is a staff that reminds God's people. It reminds God's people that God's presence is with them, that God's protection is with them, and that God's provision is with them. And in your life, when the enemies are coming against you, and in your life, when the threats of opponents are on you, you need to have your hands up. Hold your hands up and hold up in your hands all the promises of God in your life. God, you have been present with me. God, you have protected me. And God, you continue to provide for me and my family. You need to have your arms up. This is the first point in the Christian formation, victory formation. Here's the second point. You need to be surrounded by godly committed people. You need to be surrounded by godly committed people. Moses is instructed to go up onto the hill. And he's supposed to hold his arms up. How long do you think you could hold your arms up? And I'm not talking about your hands, you know, spirit fingers. Some of you, you're like, look, I can do it. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking, your arms up in the air. How long do you think you could hold your arms up in the air? Five minutes, anybody? Just a show of hands. Half of you didn't even raise your hand then. I doubt it, all right? <laughs> you, you're either weak or you're lazy. Um, I don't know. Five minutes? How many of you think you could hold your arms up for 10 minutes? I'm not saying hold anything up. Just keeping your hands above your head for 10 minutes. Anybody? Right, 15 minutes. Just show, let me see your hands. Science, which we know is always true. Science says that above average people can only hold their hands up for nine minutes. No, again, we're not talking about this. Like some of you are like this. We're talking about like full extension. Nine minutes. A battle takes a lot longer than nine minutes. 
not only does the battle take a lot longer than nine minutes, but Moses isn't exactly young at this point in his life. I mean, he's ancient. I mean, he, for real, he's not, we're not talking about a 15 or 16-year-old guy. We're not talking about a 25-year-old guy. We're talking about a guy that, he's up there. Now, not as far up there as some of y'all, but he's up there. And he's had a tough life. I mean, I mean he's had to work and, and exert himself, and he's got to hold his arms up. And he can't do it. He can't do it. Up on the mountaintop, there's two guys. One of their names is Aaron. The other one's name is Ur. Aaron is Moses' younger brother uh, by about three years. He's up on the hilltop with Moses. God, uh, we first encounter Aaron back in Exodus chapter 4. God told Moses when he told Moses he was going to use him to deliver the nation of Israel from Egyptian slavery. He said, I'm going to send your brother with you to help you. And so Aaron has been with Moses all along. He's up on the hilltop with him. Aaron is from the Uh, from the tribe of Levi. He will become the first priest in the Levitical order. This is Aaron. The other guy that's up on the hilltop with him is Ur. We don't know as much about Ur. There are at least three other Urs that are mentioned in the Old Testament. What we do know about him is that he is uh, that he's always used in conjunction with Aaron and that he, is, he evidently is a trusted person in the nation of Israel because he has direct access to the leader of Israel. So he's other, obviously he's trustworthy, he's evidently um, committed, and he's evidently involved in leading the nation of Israel. Well, these guys see Moses struggling and they're like, oh, pitiful thing. Let's get him a rock to sit on. So they give him a rock to sit on All right, so here is Moses sitting down on this rock, and he's still got to hold his arms up. And I'm just going to mention to you, it is much easier to put your arms up when you're standing than sitting. All right, this isn't, this is, this doesn't help at all. But this is the situation he's in, and he can't put his arms down because whenever he puts his arms down, the nation of Israel starts getting whooped on the battlefield. So he's like, I'm just kind of stuck here. And how do you get up from this position with your arms being up? Like, he can't. Some of you can do this. You could stand up from a seated position with your arms up. I am not one of those people. So he's like, they're like, this is pitiful. Like this guy, like he's in a mess, all right? We got to help him. So her's like, Aaron, you get one side, I'll get the other side. You, you get one side, I'll get the other side. Kyle Jack, come on. Come on. Patrick, you're getting chosen. Let's go. You guys can decide who's going to be her and who's going to be Aaron. Uh, That's Aaron. You can be her. I'm going to be Moses. All right. Just because I can't get back up. I'm going to preach the rest of the message from here. Um, So I got to keep my arms up. There we go. So much. It is easier. Now, listen, listen. I've got to 1130. Yeah, the battle's going to be done pretty soon. 14 <laughs> minutes, I'm counting. Uh, so, listen, here's two points that you have to understand. Number one, you need to understand that in order for these guys to help me, I have to let them. All right? Some of you need someone around you to hold your arms up during the battle, but you won't let anybody get close enough. The second thing is you need people who are godly and committed. Godly means that they're committed not to their cause or your cause. They're committed to God's cause. 
the reason that they step in and they give of themselves to hold his arms up isn't because they just like holding another man's hand. It's because they want the nation of Israel to win. They're committed to God's cause, but they're also committed to Moses' well-being. Listen, it's not easy to be this guy. Like, you're looking at these two studly gentlemen, and you're like, that's easy. But remember the setting. These people are in the wilderness. Moses is old. He's been leading these folks through the wilderness. They've barely had enough water to drink. It's been a hot, dusty journey, and the man has no access to deodorant. So what do you think these guys are dealing with right now? Like, he stinks, Literally, Moses stinks. And they're like, all right, how long is this going to take? Like, I'm smelling what I don't want to smell. How long is this going to take? But you know why they don't give up, even though it's a messy situation? Because they're committed. They're committed. They're not going to back out when it's inconvenient. They're going to stick in there because they are committed. You guys can put my hands down. I can't feel them now. All right. (laughs) They can have a seat. Thank these men for their help. Hey, listen, in your victory formation, you need godly committed people in your life. You need godly committed people in your life. Listen, from the beginning of time, God never thought it was good for someone to be alone. When he created Adam, it didn't take him long before he resolved, you know what, it's not good for this guy to be alone, so he's going to give Adam Eve. We move forward into the scripture and we see that God has always paired people together Daniel, the great prophet of God, the great man of prayer, he wasn't alone. If you read the beginning chapters of the book of Daniel, he has three guys that stood with him, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel wasn't alone. We move forward and we see so many of the prophets that are paired up and given someone uh, to walk through life with them. We get to the New Testament, the disciples. There were 11 other disciples that were put with them because no one disciple needed to stay alone. You get to the uh, book of Acts in the beginning when Peter stood up to preach the first Uh, the first sermon under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the scripture is so beautiful. It says, and when he stood, the 11 stood with him. He never had to stand alone. Paul, the great missionary of the New Testament, he never traveled alone. In the beginning, he had Barnabas, and then he had Silas, and then he had Timothy. He never went at it alone. God doesn't want you to be alone. God wants you to have godly committed support around you to carry you and to support you through the victory. And you need to know that your life group, your Lone Oak First Baptist Church life group is your support. This is your support. We don't want to just be a church that says this is what you should do and then make you figure it out. We want to be the church that says this is what you need and we're here to help you figure it out. And so I want you to know the life groups here at Lone Oak First Baptist Church are given so that you have godly committed support in your life. Now what's a life group? Let's talk for just a minute. A life group is basically a Sunday school class on steroids. Did any of you grow up in Sunday school, going to Sunday school? Some of you? I did too. Some of my best memories in life are from Sunday school. Also, some of the worst memories I have from life are from Sunday school. Sunday school was, uh, was a program that was originated in, uh, in England in the late 1800s. And it was a program that a man started where he would teach illiterate street boys how to read so that they could have a future using the Bible 
And the hope was, is not only that he would teach them how to read, but he would also give them the gospel. The original thrust of Sunday school was for evangelism, to reach people, not only in their social need, but to reach them by meeting their spiritual need. In the early 1900s, uh, the, the Sunday school phenomenon made it over the pond into the U.S., and many churches started adopting Sunday school within their local environment. And Southern Baptist, we did as we are naturally prone to do. We were skeptical, so we didn't initially adopt it. But eventually we saw the fruitfulness and the profitability of, uh, for, the, for the sake of the people of the Sunday school program. So we introduced Sunday school, and then we made it our own. And Sunday school became one of the most powerful tools for reaching and raising up people that local church had ever seen. Here at Lone Oak, we have Sunday school called Life Groups. But it's not just designed to reach people, but it's also designed to raise them up and to support them as they go through life. And that's what our life groups are about. We want to teach people and disciple them in a specific way, but we also want to have our life groups organized around people so that folks have the support and the accountability to get through whatever battles they're facing. And I'm telling you, you need a life group. And your life group needs you. Now again, I don't want to just tell you what you need and tell you what it's about, but I want to tell you how to get there. Specific action here. If you do not have a life group, if you do not have a life group, and it doesn't matter how young you are or how old you are, if you don't have a life group, I want you to either register for a life group or today I want you to reach out and say, I need to know more about being in a life group. And here's how you can do it. We've got a slide for you. If you are interested in either joining a life group or getting more information, right now you can take your phone out. Right now you can take your phone out. If you want to, take your phone out. Some of you already have your phones out, I know. Take your phone out and you can text GROUP to 270-398-5005. All right, it's there. You can text group and and one of the staff, one of the ministers will be in touch with you and we will help you find a group that fits you and your life stage. We'll find a group that will support you because you need godly committed support in your life. If you don't have a phone or if you haven't learned how to text yet, that's okay too. Because we have at the Connection Center, this big desk out in the lobby, we have volunteers waiting for you the moment that this service is over with hard paper copies uh, of a registration card. And you can fill that card out and we will be in contact with you very soon with information about the best life group for you or for your family. Again, it doesn't matter how young you are or how old you are. We have a life group for you. We are ready for you. And I'll tell you, in addition to these ways that you can learn about life groups, get more information and get connected to them, um, at the Connection Center, we have this brochure. And this brochure has listed all of the life groups that are available every week. Dozens of options of groups that you can be connected to that will provide for you an automatic source of godly committed support in your life. And so, if you were here and you were hearing this, And you are learning that part of the victory formation includes being surrounded by godly committed support. And you've been given direct information and instructions on how to get into a support group. And you walk away this week and don't have support. It's your own fault. You're the only one that can be blamed. Because we are committed to this and we're not going to let you down. We are ready and we want you to be connected to a life group. So would you take the steps? Here's the third point. 
Number one, the Christian victory formation includes having your arms up. Number two, it includes being surrounded by committed, godly support. And number three, it involves having your eyes up. Having your eyes up. We look at Exodus chapter 17, verses 14 through 16. Then the Lord, this is after the battle. Then the Lord said to Moses, he said, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So after the battle, the Lord tells Moses to write down what happened in a book so that he could tell it to Joshua later on. Joshua, remember, he's down in the battle, so he's not necessarily seeing what's taking place or hearing what the Lord is telling Moses. And so Moses takes note of that, and then he builds an altar. He builds an altar for worship, and he names it, the Lord is my banner. Now, in the Old Testament, the word banner, the term banner is used in a number of ways, four ways specifically, and I need to show you this because it's going gonna, it's gonna to preach, all right? Remember teaching, then preaching. We're going to get there. Track with this. There's four ways that the word banner is used in the Old Testament. The first is right here in Exodus chapter 17, verse 15. And it speaks of a standard of victory. So the Lord is my banner. In other words, the Lord is the standard of my victory. Here in this place, on this battlefield, the Lord brought victory. And he's the standard bearer of victory. That's banner one. A second word for banner in the Old Testament that's used is a signal of direction. In Jeremiah, the nation of Israel is being released from uh, exile. They're returning home. And the banner was used, the banner was used to signal direction to the Israeli refugees saying, this is the way back to Zion. Number three, the banner was used as the sustainer of salvation. In Numbers chapter 21, there's this fascinating story from the nation of Israel's Exodus event. In this particular story, the nation of Israel is being, uh, they've been overwhelmed by venomous snakes that are biting these bitter people. They're out in the wilderness and the poison and the venom of these snakes are killing the Israelites. So they beg to God, God, deliver us from this terrible thing, from this plague of venomous snakes. And so God tells Moses to make a bronze image of a serpent to put it up on top of a banner post and anyone who looks up at the serpent will be healed and saved from the venom of the snakes. And so that post that the serpent's to be on is the banner post. It's used there. The final way that the symbol or the term banner is used is it's a, it's not an explicit statement of banner, but it's the implication of the banner. The altar is used, built here, and it's named in Exodus chapter 17. An altar is built and then it's named, the Lord is my banner, and it serves as a warning and as a sign of warning to any threat, any opponent, or anyone that travels by that victory has been delivered and the victor is undefeated in this place. The banner says, victory has been established, and here's your sign, here's your warning, don't mess with it. Now, 
for the Christian, this, that's the Old Testament perspective and the Old Testament use of the term banner. But for the Christian, we need to keep our eyes not on an altar, but we need to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is our banner. Let me show you how Jesus becomes the fulfillment of the banner in the Old Testament in the New Testament. Are you ready for this? It's good. This is where you lean in and say, preach it. I will anyway. All right. Let's walk through this. Jesus becomes the fulfillment of the banner. First, we see again the standard of victory. The standard of victory. In Exodus 17, 15, the, the altar is built. Moses names it. The victory standard is God. God is our banner. He is our victory. This is the standard. We get to the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57. Paul writes, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the standard of our victory. There is nothing more and nothing less that can give a Christian victory than Jesus Christ. It is the standard of what it takes to be victorious. And God gives it to us through Jesus Christ. A signal of direction. In Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 6, the Israeli refugees are returning to Zion and the banner was raised, lifting to signify the direction back home. We jump over into John chapter 14 verse 16. Jesus is preaching and John records in his gospel, Jesus saying, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, Christians, if you want to get back home, you must follow Jesus Christ. He is the signal of of direction for you in this life. Sustainer of salvation. In Numbers chapter 21, verses 8 and 9, we see the nation of Israel wandering through the wilderness. Again, the Lord allows these bitter people to be bitten by poisonous snakes to get their attention. The only way for them to be saved is to look up at the bronze serpent that is placed at the top of the banner pole. And if they will look at and continue to gaze at the serpent that is at the top of the banner pole, then they will be saved. Jesus is our sustainer that is placed like the serpent, lifted up. And if we'll keep our eyes on him, then we'll be saved. Any of you ever seen the verse John chapter 3 verse 16? For God so loved the world. The two verses before that, verses uh, 14 and 15 Really, 13 through 15 I have for you. This is what the scriptures say. Verses 14 and 15 of John chapter 3. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him or looks to him may have eternal life. Jesus Christ is the one that's lifted up on the, bur- uh, on the banner pole and sustainer of salvation. He gives us salvation, then he sustains our salvation. A sign of warning, point four. A sign of warning, generically used, implied, is that the banner is placed there on the altar in Exodus chapter 17 as a warning to anyone who would come forward or who anyone who comes behind that the Lord has delivered a victory for the nation of Israel. You better know what you're messing with because he's undefeated. We get to Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, and the scripture says this, Paul writing to the church at Colossae, and he says, and you... Who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This 
he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. This beautiful passage, leave it up. This is a beautiful passage that tells us that Jesus Christ not only went to the cross, he went to the cross not only to conquer sin and to defeat death, but he went to cross to take all of the things that would put us there. He went to the cross to take all of the sin that puts us on the cross and to nail that sin on the cross and to leave it there so that everything that comes against us from this point forward will see this is what happens when you attack one of mine. And so the cross is empty now because Jesus Christ, he was taken off of that cross and he was put on a borrowed, in a borrowed grave. And three days later, the power of God raised him from the grave and now there's an empty grave. But the cross isn't empty. It's empty of Jesus Christ, but the cross is still full with all of the sins that hang, were hanging over your head. Jesus took them to the cross and he left them there as a symbol and as a warning to everything that comes against you. This is what happens when you mess with one of God's elect. And my friends, what you need to do in your life as the battles come against you and as the the game and opponents come against you, you need to assume a victory formation. And part of that formation is keeping your eyes on Jesus. He is, without a shadow of a doubt, the standard of victory. He is, without a shadow of a doubt, a signal of direction of how to get back home. He is the sustainer of your salvation and he is a sign of warning to any and everyone that would come against one of God's children. This is what happens when you stand up against him. My friends, I'm telling you, you need to assume the victory formation in your life. You need to have your arms raised up holding the promise, provision, and protection of God. You need to have around you godly committed people through your life group. And friends, whatever you do, you must keep your eyes on Jesus. You must keep your eyes on Jesus. And all God's people said, as we move into a time of invitation, I'm going to invite Brother Mark and the worship team to make their way forward. I want to invite you today to respond to this message. I believe it demands a response, as a matter of fact. And so how might you respond? What do you need to do? Well, this is what you need to do. You need to think, am I in victory formation? We're calling the play right now. Victory formation, we're calling it. So one, are your hands up? Are your hands up? Are your hands up signifying we're moving forward? Lowered hands, that that says retreat. But hands up say, I'm moving forward. I'm pressing on. I'm showing my dependence on God to do what only God could do. And I'm putting myself in a position where my hands are up. Lord, this is your battle, not mine. Take it and move me forward. Are you surrounded by godly committed people? Now in that, some of you, You need to let somebody in your life to help you. And, and you have, for whatever reason, you, you've been embarrassed, you've been ashamed, you, you've wondered what will people think? Will they push me out? Will they cast me out? Listen, our life group's here. We're here to walk with you through life. We're not here to step over you while we go through life. And I'm gonna tell you, some of our, our, our life groups have amazing testimonies of walking with people through, through trying 
in terrible situations. I heard of one life group walking with someone who, who had a death in their family years ago and they're still grieving that. And the, the life group's just loving on them because they, they're just struggling. This past week, I heard the testimony of a life group in this church that were walking with a number of people who were dealing with alcohol addiction. And what I found to be so fascinating is when they found out that there were members of their life group that were currently alcoholics, currently drinking to alter their mood and currently consuming alcohol in in unreasonable amounts, they didn't kick them out. There may be churches that do that, not this church. Not as long as I'm the pastor, we're not. What they did is said, hey, you know what? It doesn't seem like you need somebody to push you down. It seems like you need someone to hold you close. And so they did. And they're walking through it. And it's a long journey. It's not an easy one. It's not quick. It's a long journey. Addiction is. You might need to let someone in. And I'll tell you, this church is filled with some incredibly trustworthy folks. In a minute, at the, at the invitation, we're going to have ministers down to the front. I'll be in the center. We're going to have uh, men to the left and to the right. And there's also going to be altar team members. There's going to be women. Here, hear this. We, we have a couple of women that are going to be available at the altar. So ladies, if you need someone to pray with you, to support you, if you want to let someone in, we have women that can pray with you. Sometimes you just need that, ladies. There will be some down here that can just pray over you, encourage you, hug your neck. But you got to turn your eyes to Jesus. It starts there. Recognizing that you can't do it by yourself or alone, but you need Jesus Christ. Turn your eyes to Jesus. So here in the invitation, if you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you want to be saved, I want to invite you, whether you're in the front, the back, or in the balcony, to step out of your aisle and to step forward. Make your way down to the front. Take me or one of our ministers by the hand and say, I want to be saved. If you need to be baptized, come. Let us talk to you about that. If you want to join the church, come forward. Let's talk about that. And if you just need someone to pray with you, don't miss the opportunity. It's going to be worth it. Would you stand where you are? I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer, and the invitation will be open. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for the word. Lord, you're calling us to the victory formation. And so I pray for the men and the women that are here present today, whether they're in the front or in the back or in the balcony, Lord, I pray that you would lead them to respond in obedience to the way that you've called them and the way that you've invited them. Lord, bring salvation, bring obedience, and lead us to the place of victory formation. In Jesus' name, amen. The invitation's open.